What a joy it is and a privilege to week after week come together as the body of Christ and to behold the word of God. What a gift, what a treasure we have in the scriptures. We get to do that again this morning in Hebrews chapter eight as we continue our way through this wonderful book. Turn with me there, Hebrews chapter eight. Specifically today, we'll be in verses seven down through verse nine in a larger section, uh, verses seven to verse 13. But turn there with me and as you turn, I was reminded this week that human history is littered with sad stories of squandered wealth, squandered abilities, and squandered lives. Of course, as believers who hold to a biblical worldview, we understand where all of this comes from. It's the, the natural consequences of life in a fallen world. It comes from, from sin and the effects of sin in the world. But though we know that, it doesn't mean that such stories aren't still sad and tragic. In fact, I was reading an article in, on NASDAQ.com reporting this staggering statistic that it's estimated that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation and 90% will lose it by the third. Now, of course, there are a number of factors that play into why that would be the case, but one that's all too common is the inability of the generations that follow the original earner of that wealth to appreciate the work and the hardship that went into making it. The generations that follow did not have the privilege of experiencing the blood, sweat, and tears involved in the earning of that money, nor did they learn along the way the process of how to rightly handle that money. So when it comes down to them, they don't appreciate it as they should, and they don't know how to steward it properly. The result of that then is they spend it recklessly and they invest it poorly, resulting ultimately in the loss of the capital altogether. Even King Solomon, the wisest man on the planet, lamented this reality in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses 18 and 19, when he says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun, this too is vanity. But this morning, my concern for us is not necessarily that we wouldn't appreciate the physical wealth that God has given us, although we ought to steward all that God's given us. But my main concern this morning is that of the author of Hebrews, and that is that we don't squander or lack appreciation for the great spiritual wealth that is ours in Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, it means that you have been blessed immensely in incalculable ways to be a part of the body of Christ, to belong to Christ. And our, our finite brains are inadequate to ever really fully grasp the magnitude of what is ours in Christ. But this morning, the author of Hebrews turns our attention specifically to, to one area of appreciation, one spiritual blessing that we have as those who belong to Christ as part of his ministry towards us. And my hope is that as we study this section over the next two Sundays, that our appreciation of what we have in Christ will grow to new heights, that we would never take for granted what Christ has purchased for us, specifically in this context, dealing with the new covenant, the blessing of the new covenant in Christ. Now to accomplish this, to help us grow in our appreciation, the author's gonna tell us about the old covenant first and then next week about the new covenant in Christ. And as we put the two together, I pray that our hearts soar with gratitude for what our savior has done for us. If you haven't been with us in our journey through Hebrews, the theme of the book as a whole is the superiority of Christ. Over and over again, we look at how Christ is better than everything else, particularly everything else that was part of the old covenant. And this section that we started last week is a section that runs from chapter eight, verse one, all the way through chapter eight, verse, uh, or chapter 10, verse 18, dealing with Jesus's superior covenant and sacrifice. And we'll be unpacking this one grand idea that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every 
believer. Last week we were in Hebrews chapter eight, verses one to six. For the sake of context, I want us to read those verses again because they play into our verses today. So let's read together Hebrews eight, one. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Verse one, we saw last week begins with this great announcement that believers have such a, a superior high priest. This priest proves his priesthood by his superior seat and his superior sanctuary. In verse three, we saw the necessity of Christ's ministry followed by the shadow of his ministry and then the superiority of his ministry in verse six. And we need to take just a moment to, to remind ourselves of verse six because verse six functions as the end of that first section, but also as the beginning of the next. The things that are declared to us in verse six pave the way for the argument that the author will make in the coming verses. Notice again, verse six, he says, but now he has obtained, that is Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. There's the introduction of our theme, a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So the ministry of Christ surpasses that of the former high priest because his ministry is carried out under the administration of a new covenant. A covenant, remember, is a, a binding agreement between two parties that defines the way that those two will relate to one another. Jesus, he says, is the mediator of this new covenant, meaning, as we saw last Sunday, that he is the one, first of all, that goes between us and the Father, he mediates between us and the Father, but also he's the surety of the covenant. That is the covenant, the validity of the covenant stands on Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And so this covenant then is doubly secured by Christ. It is secured by his blood and his perfect life and his sacrifice on our behalf, but it also continues to be secure because he ministers even now at the right hand of the father, which he will do forever. So verse six then gives this astounding claim that Christ has ushered in this better covenant and the better covenant also contains better promises. Now I want you to pretend for a moment that you were a, a Jewish person at the time that this is written, hearing these words. This would have, would have hit them hard to hear that there is a covenant now that's better than the previous covenant and it contains better promises but that's exactly what the author has said. But he also knows that it's important when you throw out a statement as grand as this one, that you offer some proof. And so that's what he's gonna do for us starting today. He's gonna prove why he has said that Christ brought a better covenant and what exactly are those promises that are better than the promises of the old. So with that in mind, let's read our passage for this morning, beginning in verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with him, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said that, when, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now in these verses, we have three components of his argument. We can break it into these three parts. I'm gonna go ahead and give them all to you now, but we won't make it through all three this morning. But component number one, we'll call the statement in verse seven. Component number two is the support for that statement, verses eight to 12. And then component number three is the summation in verse 13. So the statement, the support, and the summation. Let's begin by opening with this first component in verse seven, the statement. What is this statement that he begins his argument with here in verse seven? He begins with the word for, which means he's explaining, he's expounding upon what he said in verse six, that this is a better covenant with better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now this is the exact same formula that the author has used earlier when talking about Christ's priesthood being better than that of the previous priesthood. Listen to how he said this in Hebrews 7:11. He says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. This is his favorite tactic. And, and, and here now, talking about the covenant of Christ, he uses the same, uh, the same process, a conditional statement, an if-then statement. If this is true, then this must also be true. And in simple terms, this is the statement. If the first covenant was flawless, then why was there a need for a second? So the coming of a new covenant in and of itself proves the fact that there must have been something lacking in the first. And he states this in, in such a way that it becomes clear that there must have been something faulty or lacking in this first covenant. And we'll talk about that. But when he says that, let me be really clear. When he, when he claims that there was something lacking in the first covenant, he's not in any way saying that God made a mistake that somehow that God created a covenant that just couldn't pass the muster, so he had to make a second. That's not what he's saying at all. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant here. That's the first covenant. God gave that covenant just as he gave the new covenant. And God gave it just as he meant to give it. God didn't leave out anything that he intended to include. But that first covenant was intended always to leave the people longing for a new one. It was intended to draw them towards the conclusion that they needed something more because the first covenant could not provide the final eternal atonement for their sins that they desperately needed. And so it was like this, this call to repentance, this call to recognize that a true redeemer was needed. They needed a covenant that could deal with man's sin with finality, done it is finished kind of covenant. And that is the kind of covenant God would provide. But the genius of the author's inspired argument here becomes clear when he arrives in verse eight at the start of his support for the argument. Because the Jewish opponents who would have been questioning the validity of what he just said would not have just taken his word for it. They may not even have taken Jesus's word for it if Jesus alone was the one that said there was a new covenant coming. They may even have accused Jesus of adding something to the law, uh, being a, a false prophet according to Deuteronomy 13, unless he could prove from the Old Testament that what he was saying is true. 
And that's exactly what the author does. He takes us now, as he's done over and over again, to an Old Testament passage and puts his finger on it to say, this is why I'm saying these things. I'm not making them up. This has been God's own revelation and it's been his revelation to our people now for hundreds of years. So as we enter into component number two, which really takes the bulk of this passage, looking at the support, this entire section is really revolving around one Old Testament passage of scripture. Look back at verse eight. He says, for finding fault with them, he says, now, realizing that many of the, the Jewish ears listening to what he has said might find the insinuation that the old covenant was lacking offensive, he immediately turns around to say it was God himself who said this. When he says here in verse eight, for finding fault with him, he says that pronoun he is none other than God himself. And this is going to usher in a discussion, a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. If you're in your Bible, if the text is in italics and centered, that's because this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. In fact, this is the longest instance of a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament passage directly. Verses 31 to 34 of Jeremiah 31. So we're going to then be looking at this passage in its context here in Hebrews, but also we're gonna to have to look back at its original context in Jeremiah because that plays into our understanding of the passage here. Let's break apart this, this quote. It begins with a promise, a promise that a new covenant is coming. A new covenant is coming. Look at the entrance of this quote. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. This is the only Old Testament passage that directly says that a new covenant will be coming with that phrase, new covenant. There are other Old Testament passages that describe the reality of that new covenant, but only here in Jeremiah do we get this clear statement that God intends one day to bring a new covenant to replace the former. And notice how it begins. It's a call to attention. Behold, listen, wake up. And then it follows that with these encouraging, hopeful words. Days are coming, says the Lord. Days are coming. Now to understand why these words are so full of hope, you have to understand the context of Jeremiah. And when was this prophecy made? What was going on at that time when Jeremiah was inspired to say and write these words? Let me just give you a quick overview of the context of Jeremiah. You might remember that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's called the weeping prophet because Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy to a people, Israel, particularly Judah in the Southern kingdom at a time when their hearts were hard. And God says, you're going to preach and preach and preach that they won't listen. Their hearts will not soften. They will not turn from their sin. Yours will be a ministry of preaching without fruitfulness, Jeremiah. We see this in Jeremiah chapter one in his calling, verses 16 and 19. God says, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, talking about the, the Israelites and Judah, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I've made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests and to the people of the land. Listen to verse 19. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. There's the response. Before he ever preaches, God says, they're going to fight against you, Jeremiah. They're not going to heed my words. 
Ultimately, the hardness of heart of the people of Judah at this time will result in God punishing them to the point that they are exiled, taken as slaves of war out of the promised land to Babylon. And so Jeremiah would weep first over the unrepentant hearts of his people. But then in Lamentations, if you've read the book of Lamentations, that is Jeremiah's lament over Jerusalem as he watches in horror as the people are marched out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem in flames. He's looking at the rubble, both physically of the city and spiritually of the hearts of the people as they're marched out to Babylon, out of the promised land because of their refusal to repent. As you read Jeremiah, much of the book is filled with heartbreaking, heart-wrenching calls for repentance. And these calls for repentance are then followed by prophetic descriptions of the destruction that will quickly come if the people don't obey. But in the midst of the dark, foreboding clouds of wrath and destruction, God gives Jeremiah brilliant rays of prophetic hope of a future restoration proclaimed to Israel. And this passage that's chosen here carefully by our author is one of those beautiful rays of sunshine, of hope in the book of Jeremiah. And that's why it's so refreshing to hear the words, but days are coming, says the Lord. It's gonna get really dark, Judah. Destruction is coming for you in the immediate future, but days are coming after these days in which there is hope in salvation. Yes, there's destruction. Yes, there is hardness of heart. Yes, God's patience has reached its breaking point and he will now bring discipline. But even in the midst of that reality, God says, I'm not finished with you salvation will come. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. This is the good news. The new covenant is the ray of sunshine in the midst of the darkness of the destruction and wrath that's coming upon them. God here is binding himself to this promise. Notice the language. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. This is God binding himself to this promise. The people didn't seek this covenant. This is God declaring out of his own goodness and kindness and grace and mercy saying, I will make this covenant a new covenant with you. So all of Israel since the time of Jeremiah should have been anxiously awaiting not only the arrival of Messiah, but also the arrival of this new covenant. It's stated here in plain language. This should have been their, their, their expectation. It should have been their, their hope because this covenant comes with better promises. This introduction of a new covenant from the very mouth of God through Jeremiah proves the author's point already. If everything was, was perfect in the first, why this promise of the second? But just to prove it even further, he continues to quote, he could have just stopped here because clearly God's just said he's gonna bring a new covenant, but he goes on to give the longest quote in the New Testament of an Old Testament passage and gives us all the details that Jeremiah included about this new covenant. We're gonna break them out into five details about the new covenant. Five details concerning the new covenant. We'll only make it through the first three this morning. We'll save the others for next week. But detail number one, we'll call the recipients. The recipients. Specifically, who does he make the covenant with here in context? He says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is not an unimportant detail, both in the context of Jeremiah and in our context in Hebrews. We need to deal with this statement. 
it's actually crucial to our understanding because there are many of our brothers and sisters that I love and respect who teach what's called replacement theology. That is that God is, is done with Israel and he will accomplish his future promises only in the church. And while there, again, there are many men who I love and respect who hold to this, it simply will not bear up under the weight of the passage because the passage says and unapologetically, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, God is the initiator of the covenant. This is his idea, it's his promise, just as he was the initiator of the previous covenant. They didn't ask for that one either, but God graciously said, I will make a covenant with you, specifically with Israel and Judah. Now to be clear, we as Gentiles, as Gentile believers, also have the privilege of participating and benefiting from this new covenant. You already know that if you're a believer in Christ, you benefit from it every day. And I'm gonna explain how that came to be here in a moment, but we have to understand that our participation as Gentiles in the new covenant in no way erases the clear teaching of scripture that the new covenant was made between God and the people of Israel. This is a great time, by the way, just to mention a, a key uh, principle of hermeneutics, that is how we read and interpret the Bible correctly, that we're never to use a New Testament passage to reinterpret an Old Testament passage in a way that undermines the clear meaning of that Old Testament passage in its original context. It is true, God has given us revelation progressively over time. That is, he didn't tell us everything in the garden. Over time, he began to reveal himself more and more. And so in the New Testament, we have added information, added revelation. And that added revelation brings some clarity to certain things. It expounds upon the meaning of certain things, but it never erases the original meaning of these Old Testament passages. Instead, we have to bring the two together to fully understand what God is saying without violating what he said originally. And just in case we're, we're tempted to, to, to reinterpret this and say, when he says the house of Israel and Judah, we'll just call that the church. We can't do that because in the very next verse after this quote, listen to the, the promise that God makes to bind himself to this promise. Jeremiah 31 verses 35 to 40. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Verse 38, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord uh, from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out uh, farther straight ahead to the hill of Gareb, then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Now, just in case we're tempted to miss the significance of what God just said, God said, my promise of a new covenant uh, to the people of Israel in the future is as fixed as the created order that I made and sustain. If the created order gives out, then my promise will give out. That's a way of saying my promise won't give out. And notice the word forever, forever. So my point is that though it's clear from the New Testament and even our experience today that a massive number of Gentiles are saved and, and brought into the people of God, we're beneficiaries of the new covenant of Christ, that in no way changes the clear fact that God will not abandon Israel. 
and many will come to saving grace. In fact, here he includes both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern. He says the house of Israel, that's the the northern 10 tribes, and the house of Judah, that's the two tribes in the south. And here's why that's significant. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria over 100 years before these words were written. They're already out of the promised land, and yet God includes them in the promise and says, that's no obstacle for me to save my people. But that does bring the question, how does our current situation in which primarily Gentiles are responding to the gospel fit with this promise that the new covenant would come to the people of Israel? Well, Paul had the same question and he gives us the inspired answer to that question in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 29. Let me just read this to you and then we'll move forward and show how this ties into the passage as a whole. Paul says in Romans 11, speaking of this very conundrum of the Gentiles and the Jews, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What Paul says is there was a a mystery. A mystery in scripture is something that was previously unknown, known only to God, but God in his grace has revealed it to us. And here is the mystery. The New Testament explains that a massive group of Gentiles will respond to the Messiah and come to saving faith. And that for a time there'll be a partial hardening, a partial blindness spiritually of the people of Israel as this massive group of Gentiles are saved. We're living in that experience right now. But God will not abandon his people forever. And there will come a day when many uh, Jewish people will come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and be saved. And therefore all Israel in that sense will be saved. Just to be clear, we are one people of God. There's always been one people of God, one people of God saved by grace through faith, but God has made specific promises to Israel and he will not fail to keep them. Now with that in mind, why did I go through all of that? What does all of that have to do with helping us understand this passage? Well, I wanna assure you that was not a rabbit trail intended to take us away from Hebrews. I didn't go through that because I just enjoy talking about theology and those kinds of things. It actually plays right into the meaning of this passage here in Hebrews. And all we have to do is simply think about the context. Remember what's happening here with these Jewish Christians. They're struggling with spiritual apathy. Apparently they're missing some aspects of the old covenant. They're looking back over the fence at Judaism and saying, man, those were the days. And now there are those, those Jewish people who've not come to faith accusing Jesus and accusing these new uh, believers of taking the Jewish people away from the true God into this new way that is false. But now through this exposition of Jeremiah 31, what we see is that it's not Jesus and his followers who have abandoned the Old Testament. It is those Jews who hardened their hearts against the Messiah and refused to accept this new covenant that he has ushered in. The author's reminding these Jewish Christians that the fact that they are following Christ is not an abandonment of true Judaism. Judaism now has been the recipient of this new covenant in which we are also beneficiaries. With the entrance of Messiah came the new covenant replacing the old. And so it's not these Jews who follow him who have abandoned their Jewish heritage and abandoned the one true God. It is those who hardened their heart against him and the Messiah that he sent to save them. And so he's telling them, stop looking back over the fence at that. 
This is what God is doing. The Messiah has come, the new covenant has come, and you're missing the great benefits of this new covenant by, by sitting in this, this apathy instead of moving forward in your faith and beholding the glory of Christ. As Christians in 2023, we have to recognize that we too can be apathetic, but for different reasons. We didn't come out of the old covenant into the new, but by God's grace, it's always been the new covenant, the whole entirety of our lives, the whole entirety of our family's lives. If you're a Christian, then the entirety of your Christian life has been lived with the benefits of the new covenant. And the problem with that for us is we can kind of uh, get used to it. It kind of grows old hat and our apathy and sort of a yawn at the thought of going through the details of the new covenant can overcome us and we can miss the rich benefits that are ours in Christ. And so just as the, the author's calling these Hebrew Christians to wake up and to stop looking back at the old covenant, we have to wake up and be renewed in our understanding of the gift that we have in Christ and all the spiritual riches he has brought. But there's a second detail revealed for us, not only the recipients, but the renovation, we'll call it. Detail number two, the renovation. Verse nine says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Look at that intimate language. On the day when I took them by the hand, and I led them out of Egypt. This is clearly the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given to the people of Israel after they were brought out of Egypt. There are other covenants in scripture, covenants like the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant that have ongoing ramifications for the future. Those covenants are not conditional covenants. They're covenants that God made with, uh, based on his own character. He will carry those out in his grace. But the Mosaic covenant had a conditional aspect to it. It was a conditional covenant. And we see this even in Exodus 19 when the covenant is initially announced to the people of Israel. Exodus 19 verses three to eight, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. This is the initiation, if you will, the bringing in of the old covenant. And from the very beginning, we know it's conditional because in verse five, look for the little two letter word, if. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, these blessings will be yours. It shows that it was a conditional covenant. It for, for later, if you're interested in this, go look at Deuteronomy 28 and you'll read a long list of blessings that will come for obedience and curses that will come for disobedience. If you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. But the key point that I wanna make is that while this was a conditional covenant, the old covenant, the new covenant is not. It is unconditional. It will never fade away. Not to mention that, uh, not only that, but it will not rest on our obedience. Praise God for that, right? Rest assured, if the new covenant was based on our obedience to keep it, then we would have already lost it a long time ago. But the reason that the new covenant continues and will continue is because it rests not on our works, but on the works of Christ himself. Praise God, the new covenant is not like the old, amen? Now just, just imagine if all the blessings in Christ that we hold so dear would only be yours as long as you kept his law. Imagine how oppressive that would be. 
This is a point where the application of this passage should begin to well up in our hearts as we begin to realize the recipients, the blessing of being recipients to this new covenant, that we are, we are in a relationship with God based on the, what Christ has done and not what we have done or will do. Well, this brings us to the third detail in this covenant description, the reason. What was the reason that this was removed? Again, he begins here in the middle of verse nine with the word for, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. This obviously flows right out of the second detail. The old covenant, as we said, was a conditional covenant and the sad reality is the people of Israel failed to keep it just as we would have failed to keep it if that had been the covenant God had given to us. They failed to meet the condition of the covenant which was obedience to the law and so therefore the Bible says here that God did not care for them. Now we have to be careful not to misunderstand what the passage is saying. God never failed to be anything but merciful and kind and long-suffering and patient with the people of Israel. What happened is what God told the people of Israel would certainly happen if they disobeyed him. So when it says that he did not care for them, really it's describing the reality that when the people disobeyed, God gave them what he told them they would get for disobedience, which was the curses in the law. And in case we're tempted to think that perhaps that was just a little over the top, maybe, maybe God could have waited a little longer before giving this punishment, let's remind ourselves of the condition of the people at this time, just how far they had run from Yahweh. This is Jeremiah chapter one, verses five to 13. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, sons I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Katim and see that, and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In chapter four, verse four, he concludes and says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quit it because of the evil of your deeds. The reason for the need of a new covenant is obvious with just a simple reading the people routinely rebelled against God. They would not humble their hearts in repentance and therefore God did to them what he promised he must do. In his justice, he brought discipline. But even in the midst of the outpouring of that justified discipline, God's infinite mercy and grace came shining through. Because amidst the prophecies concerning their destruction, as we have seen, he also declared to them the glorious hope of a day when there would be a new covenant. 
a new covenant purchased by the blood of his own son. And it's here, Christians, that we have to stop and take in the grandeur of our God. The goal of all this study has been that we might behold the glory and the majesty of the grace of God. Behold the beauty of his plan of redemption, Christian. All these things were planned in the mind of God before he ever created the world, both the old covenant and the new, and we must not miss the significance of these things. The Israelites had all the advantages that any person could imagine. They had the, the true prophets speaking from the true God, guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea. They had prophets like Elijah and, 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 and Elisha doing divine miracles, giving proof of God's presence among them. They had the perfect provision of God in the promised land. They had the true worship of God and the very holy of holies. They had it all and yet what was the outcome of their lives, rebellion, wickedness, idolatry, and sin. They could not muster the righteousness required to maintain a right relationship with God, even with all their benefits. Their disobedience and their failure to keep the old covenant is in itself the argument for the need for a new one. The old covenant revealed man's inability on his own strength to keep God's law. The faultiness of the old covenant was not the law itself. It was the inability of the people to obey it. It was powerless to truly deal with their transgressions and sins because they were powerless to walk in perfect righteousness. And yet these Hebrew Christians are becoming nostalgic about their life under the law. And what's worse is humanity today continues to plug its ears, refusing to learn from the lesson of the old covenant. The failure of Israel to obey God by keeping his law with all their benefits given to them has largely fallen on deaf ears for the rest of the world. Still to this day, the internal natural bent of fallen man is to do his best to be good in his own strength. The sinful heart of man leads him to believe the same old lie that he can do it. He can be good enough if he just tries harder, if he just tries this religious system or that religious system. And when that doesn't work, he just tries to rewrite the system in his own image, coming up with his own definitions of morality. Maybe I'll just redefine love and I'll redefine uh, justice and kindness and holiness. And they're doing nothing but creating their own cisterns that cannot hold water instead of turning in repentance to the fountain of life. And all the while, sinful man continues to heap on himself the wrath of God. Maybe you're here this morning and that is a description of you. Let me ask you, have you convinced yourself that you're basically a good person? Maybe you know that you need to be made right with God and that's why you're here. Maybe you wanna start that process and the thought process is, hey, I know God likes church and so I'll go to church and, and he'll like me. Are you trying to do your best to appease your guilty conscience? Just trying to be good enough to clean yourself up, to come to God hoping he will accept you? Well, this morning, the call of Hebrews is to listen to the lesson of the old covenant. The apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter three, verse 24, that this is the point of the old covenant. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Friend, the purpose of the old covenant was to cause us to yearn for a new one and a new one has come. A new one that is so much better the Bible says the answer to your sin problem is not working harder to appease God in your own strength. The answer to your sin problem is the person of Jesus Christ. He has lived the perfect life. He offered that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for sin. And he rose again from the grave to new life on the third day. And now he offers to all who will come in repentance and faith in him and what he has done, salvation forever. 
This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the new covenant. Learn the lesson of the old covenant and run to Christ who authored the new. If you're a believer this morning, there's application for us as well as we draw our time to a close. And I wanna point our attention just to one word of application. Marvel at God's mercy and grace. Marvel at God's mercy and grace. As we've studied this announcement of the new covenant that came at the height of Israel's rebellion and idolatry, what we have seen shining through that is the character of our God. Christian, do you marvel at your God? Do you meditate on his character? Who can comprehend him? Who can measure his mercy? Who can fathom his grace? Christian, this is your God. This is your savior. He is a redeeming God to the core of his being. He is a rescuer by his very nature. And he's not only revealed to us that we cannot do what is required in and of ourselves, but that he will then do what he has required in the person of his son. And that should move us, Christian. That should stir us up day in and day out. It should stir us up in our affections for Christ. It should stir us up and cause us to draw near to him in prayer. It should stir us up in the sense that it should cause us to love this book and to scour its pages to know and love God's truth. It should motivate us now to seek to obey with our, our greatest efforts, but not to earn anything from God, but rather just to love him and to worship him out of gratitude. And it should cause us then to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to others. And so I wanna call us to meditate on the richness of our God. I would encourage you Christians this week to read through these passages again, read through this, this passage in Jeremiah 31. And I want you to look for the attributes of God that come shining through these pages. Meditate on his mercy and his grace. And as you do that, it's my prayer that we will come to the same conclusion as the apostle Paul, as he ends Romans 11 and says these words, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, that is the cry of our heart. To him be the glory forever in all things. And we pray that you would help our hearts to resonate with these truths in many ways, familiar truths. They're the, the first truths we've learned of you when we came to know you, and yet we've been learning them new every day to see new facets of your grace, new facets of your mercy and your goodness. Help us never to grow tired of these wonderful truths, but to only grow in our appreciation of the gospel and of the glory of our God. It's in his name we pray, amen.